0: Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic.
1: Hello, everybody. Welcome to this fourth edition of the week of the Into the Impossible podcast. Join live and in person and direct with your friend and mine, Dr. Eric Weinstein. Hello, Eric. How are you, sir? Brian, all the way great back to there. Be
2: here at the University of California at San Diego.
1: We've been working all day on new theories and new experimental techniques, and I thought it only fair to let in some of my audience to get to know you better in the world of physics and math that makes you tick. Um, now I'm going to see if people can hear Eric. So Eric, they're saying they can't hear you so well. Can you, can you scooch on over, sconch on over, still in the frame? Is that better? let's see give us a thumbs up if you can hear eric is that better all right this is great all right that's it Uh, that was all we wanted to do good night shabbat shalom no we are going to go and have a wide-ranging conversation with the one and only the effervescent eric weinstein so we've been talking a lot about theories of everything today and that's been a lot of fun for me let me just see the chat in the chat room i want to make sure we get questions answered we decided to do an ask me anything really about uh eric asking eric anything and i'll tag along for the ride i did get one comment that i want to start off with and then i'm going to exalt my uh host prerogative at different points during the conversation but the first question is you pitch yourself as an outsider Mm -hmm. in physics and yet you've had opportunities that many people would die for being a postdoc at prestigious institutions around the world um why do you consider yourself an outsider in physics Why don't you consider yourself more closer to an insider in that you've done these things on the inner level at the highest levels of theoretical physics? Well,
2: it's an interesting question. I would say that first of all, there's an issue of respect. Um, Whatever my issues are with the theoretical physics community, I view it as being probably the most important intellectual community that we have. And uh, I don't think that an outsider says, I'm a physicist, I think that that's an occasional privilege that physicists dole out, and I'm not so presumptuous to think that I am one. I mean, there's a there's a there's a physics sequence, right? And it has to do with a couple of semesters of mechanics, of electromagnetism, of quantum theory, of thermodynamics. Of this, I've had only one uh, of the regular courses, which is the mechanics, the first semester of mechanics. So. Whatever it is, it's not the standard sequence. Um, Mm -hmm. So I I guess in part, um, it's the same same thing as in economics. If you haven't taken the classes, if you haven't come up the standard sequence, you you owe it to people to let them know that you are not coming at this from the expected
1: perspective. So it's more of a kind of uh, hum- uh, out of humility, out of respect, deference for the true physicists that are working, cradle to grave in
2: physics. You know, when you when you when you're the sort of a person who's giving your all to compute perturbation series and to make sure that you don't drop a minus sign over seven pages of calculations, uh, I got the, all the respect in the world for people who do theoretical physics professionally for a living and take it seriously, and. Yeah, I mean, I I think that there's also just, it's just professional respect. Mm -hmm. I'm not a physicist by my own understanding of what it is a physicist. I mean, I play the guitar, but I'm not a guitarist. So Mm
1: -hmm.
2: it's the same sort of a thing. I I recognize what it takes to be those
1: things. Do you feel like an outsider under those definitions can actually be accepted by the orthodoxy of physics? Uh, Leaving aside the point of whether or not you can actually contribute something as a non-physicist?
2: On my worst day with respect to my feelings about the theoretical physics community, I don't think it's ever been so corrupt that it would turn down a right answer if somebody from outside the community could come up with it, no matter how horrible that person is. Now, whether the community was gracious about it, whether they put somebody else's name on it, whether they did, there are all sorts of things you can fault physicists for doing. Mm -hmm. But I've never known them to turn down the right answer uh, in service of doing something stupid when they've understood that both are options.
1: Mm -hmm. Okay, we have our first question coming in from the audience here. Uh, This is from Yuf. um, And this is a paradigmatic question I get asked a lot. I've got, he has a or she has a theory, two new fields of math that deal in analog quantities. They allow for hypercomputation and piano's axioms, analog matrices, and point wave geometry. How should I gift them to the world? What would you say to such a person, realizing that sometimes people might think what you talk about in Geometric Unity is analogous, but let's to what well, th- let's put it in the same terms then. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, let's do it.
2: Um, the key issue is the following: when you ask people to evaluate your work, and Brian, we have to come up with some way that people aren't looking quite so directly into your scalp. Yes,
1: I know. My bald spot is going to be revealed. Okay. There we go. <laughs> How about this?
2: All right. I think it goes like this: people don't understand that the major cost in evaluating a theory is time. And so if you if you have the most brilliant thing in the world, first of all recognize that you're almost certainly lying to yourself hmm. um, and this is, this is the painful thing that people will not tell aspiring outsiders um, in general, almost everything that comes in from outside is is wrong mm-hmm. and so the, the quick cut is if somebody isn't playing by the rules the reason there's only one reason not to play by the rules and that's that you don't have anything and you want to believe that you have something. Mm-hmm. So whether you're trying to fool us directly or trying to fool yourself first and us secondarily, the suspicion is that if you don't do things the usual way, there's only one reason, it's because you don't really have anything. And that's the biggest thing that you're up against. What you're up against is people will feel that you're wasting their time and that you're threatening their credibility. And they won't tell you those things. They'll say things like, well, just write it up, put it on the archive, break off an experiment, show sh- sh- show what your theory does that no other theory does, and I don't think any of those things are likely to work for a long time, because uh, honestly, the, your your theory is not going to get read, and your the major fear people will have that they won't tell you is that maybe they'll think your theory is right, and they won't catch how wrong it is, and then they're going to look like an ass in front of their colleagues, and that's why nobody wants to do this stuff.
1: Yeah, we were talking earlier today about the <clears throat> tortured path that Einstein took, to get to the uh, general theory of relativity, starting in, I believe, 1913, he came up with a very crude estimation. He and Marcel Grossman. Grossman, yeah. And, and Grossman was, of course, instrumental into the eventual you know, ex- wide acceptance of the theory of relativity. They were competing, but they were also co- deeply collaborative. I think they
2: were really much more collaborative than yeah. they were competing.
1: Um, but everything that uh, is succeeds needs a story, and sometimes a story of competition sure. is the one that sells. Uh, and But anyway, the 1913, 1914, 1950, 1916, until 1917, when the final version of GR comes out, and it includes something that later would be apocryphally called his greatest blunder, Einstein's greatest blunder. That's hearsay, blunder. but yes. Yes, exactly. Mario Livio, who's been on my podcast, the Into the Impossible podcast. Oh, and I want to remind people out there. I've done, you know, what, 17 interviews just this month alone with Nobel Prize winners, friends like my friend Eric Weinstein, and others, uh, scientists and not. And so please do me the favor of subscribing, liking, thumbs-upping, or whatever. Is that even a verb? Uh, but I know that you need exercise. Every day doctors tell you to exercise your fingers. So push the subscribe button while we're talking. Um, so this tortured path that Einstein Not took. to mention
2: for Eric Weinstein's channel.
1: Yes, Eric Weinstein. All you right, have a small channel of something. But some come on. Uh, <laughs> uh, the question is, uh, you know, the provisional nature. Can you imagine GR being accepted in the age of Twitter? And I don't mean like, oh, it's just stupid, but like actually legitimate questions about the inadequacies of the theory in 1913 as compared to the final version. And then the final version has this big bang, you know, latent within it.
2: So to speak. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, I think that in large measure, we know that the Twitter sphere would crap all over general relativity as the world sort of crapped on it until it realized through Eddington's work that. This had powerful predictive um, power, and even then there was stinginess about it. So I think the answer tends to be that when something really big happens, we're very frightened to imagine that things could really change because nobody wants egg on their face. And in general, that's what happens when new things uh, are proposed: is we find out they're not nearly as cool or correct. And 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 you know, I know that that's by the way what I'm up against. Um, people imagine that you don't understand. What it sounds like to be thinking about these things, and you don't understand what the issues are, but you know definitely, these are the issues.
1: Mm-hmm. All right, we have a question from Good Mother, a super chat which pays my college kids' uh, kids' college tuition, and I give a portion to uh, Eric. No, he, no, he does not. No, I don't. I just give you bad coffee. <laughs> um, super chat asking our our Good Mother asking is freedom of speech the answer to geometric oh. unity? I don't know. What that I don't
2: means. know what that means. Okay. I don't good. think so.
1: Yes or no? Uh, we had another super chat and that is from pi to nine decimal places super chat pi i'll donate every hour pour a drink take your time keep it going that's not a question but i'll allow it for ten bucks we go back to this uh, to the uh preceding question here i had a question about uh let's see i saw one about uh, oh yes this is from Reza habib raza says i'm currently a third year mathematics student with an interest in mathematical physics further uh, what specific areas of math would you advise me to explore further topics within differential geometry
2: Um uh, boy i would recommend look some of the let, let me give you a few books that i think changed my life uh yes. completely one is would be einstein manifolds by bess mm-hmm. which is actually a fictitious collective like bourbaki that happened to write a book that's not really about Einstein manifolds, best book on differential geometry I've ever seen. Uh, I think it went out of print. There's another book called Spin Geometry by Michelson, uh, which I would highly recommend. There's an old paper by Iguchi, Gilkey, and Hansen, Mm. which was how geometric methods were sold to physicists to begin with. It was really a book, but it came out as if it were an article uh, to make it timely that I think is worth going back to. and I would say that, um, those are, oh, the book called geometric quantization by Woodhouse, I would highly recommend. And, and that gets you all the way up to the idea that quantum field theory is now best understood as an enhanced form of bordism from differential topology in many cases, and I would look up modern treatments of quantum field theory uh, topological field theory, conformal theory, th- field theory, is enhanced boardism and go from there. But those books uh, are terrific, I- including I guess there's also a book by Getzler, uh, Berlin, and Vern uh, on heat op- heat me- heat equation methods in uh, Tia Singer index theory, mm-hmm. which I would highly recommend.
1: There's a book called um, <clears throat> Differential Geometry quantization and physics, something like that, one of these green and white books. By
2: Was that the one by Cecile Moret, the, the, the three women? Three,
1: yes, I think that's it.
2: And they have two volumes, and those those books were great when they were written. I don't know if they're really up to date.
1: Mama Araki is asking, uh, how would AlphaFold revolutionize the natural wine industry specifically with regards to varietals and terroir? Ooh, this is a... Uh, let me get my bottle of simon's observatory select while eric contemplates this question
2: well i I guess what the question is is if we can understand the three-dimensional conformal properties of various proteins using alpha fold can we effectively figure out uh, through gas chromatography and experiment and design how to come up with wines that are ever more uh, interesting in terms of uh, enhancing old world grapes i don't know this is like really this is a Terroir has, some, to some extent, been discredited. What is terroir? Terroir is sort of the theory that the French tell us, that it's something about the piece of land, the way that the wind hits it and the, mm. the way the sun shines on the vines, that is indescribable and therefore can only be done in France. But of course, at the University of California, Davis, they focused us much more on varietals and the idea that terroir was, to some extent, marketing bullshit, <laughs> um, although there's still a component of it. and so. I would say that's sort of how I read it, if I even understand your crazy but wonderful question.
1: Speaking of beverages, so this is Simon's Observatory Select. So this is a friend of mine, a friend of yours maybe too, Michael Shermer, has a buddy here in San Diego, I forget his name, but he makes fine engraved glass bottles. And we had one made with a Glenlivet, which we're not going to partake in again, because it's, a, it's 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 bad to drink two nights in a row, and we we had some fine... This is the
2: first I hear of this. Yeah. Clearly not a Russian.
1: But we are going to have some Jocko Go right now. This is for, we don't get any pennies on this. In fact, Jocko will not come on my show. He will not answer my emails as much as I'd love to have him on the show. But we'll do a free plug to Jocko. Uh, go, enjoy this. What is it? This. What am I putting in my this body? This is an energy drink that oh, enhances no. and force-multiplies your cognitive abilities. Has anyone tried this out there? I'm, I'm a little Jocko bit worried.
2: Go? You don't want to try it? Well, my friend Melissa Chen tried an energy drink on the Joe Rogan program and I think went into a, the beginning of cardiac arrest, so I think, I'll, I think I'm going to hold off.
1: Well, we've got a good medical center I just wonder. across the street over there. Okay, I'll tell you what I think of the terroir of the Jocko go. Okay, very good. Which I think comes from Maine. Has anyone tried this? Uh, it's interesting, it's it's kind of like uh, coconut, uh, a pina colada mixed with a Red Bull. Okay, Philip, I can't pronounce your last name, I'm so sorry, Chvednik, uh, oh, stop moving. Okay, what do you think, hi Eric, just wondering if you had any thoughts on the P versus NP problem. Wow, talk about a simple question. Uh, what is P versus NP, really quickly, and then do you have any thoughts on it?
2: I, I really don't. It's one of the Hilbert problems having to do with computational complexity, uh, whether problems uh, that can be described in one way are guaranteed sort of solvable within certain limits Um, I don't really think that I I think I'm overextended enough without wanting to get into the Riemann hypothesis or P equals NP, two of the most famous unsolved problems uh, that come out of mathematics and computers
1: We're getting a question or comment about the Discord server I don't think we'll take that I don't understand it I've tried to log on to the Discord server. I'm having a lot of trouble with it. There's been some issues
2: with the community bifurcating. One of the things Mm -hmm. that I found out is that academics and trolls have a lot in common. (laughs) And if you give academics the ability to become trolls, then you've got a problem with academic trolling, which I didn't know was a thing, but is very much a thing. Oh, I
1: love this on the Eigenbros. I I follow the Eigenbros. The feeling is not mutual. But Eigenbros, asking about two brothers, Eric and Brett. Who would win in a fight? Two men enter. Who leaves? You uh, first
2: a, of all, if you pilot. listen to my third essay on my most recent release, we don't throw other people under buses, nor do we sell ourselves short.
1: <laughs> and we don't say we got your back. That we will never. No, do.
2: we do if you have someone's back. We don't if you just think it sounds
1: cool. Mm. Okay, this is an interesting question from Luke Gamble. Eric, you have a personal kind of life association with Moses. Uh, would you talk to us about that? Less interested in just time to get off the planet more in whether you choose such a myth or if it chose you Mm, that's deep well i do feel like we have to
2: get off the planet and i do feel that um only physics can get us off the planet and i do think that the reason that we have to get off the planet has not been has been very recent it's only since, since 1952 through 54 that we have to get off the planet and it has to do with the power that we were able to unlock in physics and biology and so
1: would you have unleashed it If you could go back to the 50s, you know, some say, apocryphally or not, Einstein's letter to Roosevelt, et cetera, he understood the implications that was lurking within the the theory. Um, Would you, you know, kill Einstein's grandfather? Would you have prevented this from happening? If
2: I was a better person, I'd contemplate that. Mm -hmm. I can't even contemplate that.
1: And actually, to complete this question... Oh, sorry, go ahead.
2: But the other thing is, there was no way out. We were always destined... If you let cephalopods, if you let cuttlefish develop long enough, eventually cuttlefish would have fused the atomic nuclei, right? So the problem is with the problem is with hydrogen. Mm-hmm. Right? The fact that you can fuse hydrogen while on Earth with a little bit of mathematics, uh, it was always there. And it's always been like that, and there's no way out. And so I really I think that in in some sense we we can blame Zillard, we can blame Teller, we can blame Einstein. But that's not the culprit the culprit is human ingenuity and mm-hmm. the fact that we are smarter than we are wise
1: i think the real uh <clears throat> the real uh, an analogy would be the promised land is on earth i mean you have no interest in space right and it's not like you want to go to mars well i don't want prefer- to leave the yeah, earth you, the promised land is staying on earth no, not no, no, like no. moses did right no
2: i don't agree with that you
1: opinion. want to get but off the earth
2: it's not a question of i want to i think that the promised land wasn't much Egypt was a nicer place. It had indoor plumbing, maybe it had streets, who knows what it had, it had something. Mm-hmm. But you have to know when it's time to leave, and that's the point, is, is that we can't stay here unless we're gonna get a lot smarter. So some people are gambling that we can get smarter, and I'm gambling that we actually have worn out our welcome here and that we better spread out so that some of us don't blow up every everything. Yeah.
1: Question from Succulent Succulents. Hello Eric, have you had a serious look at Stephen Wolfram's and teams? physics projects. Well, you may not remember, Mr. or Mrs. Succulents, uh, that we did a podcast together. In fact, it's coming up on 100,000 download views, at least on YouTube, my most popular episode featuring my handsome friend here. And uh, that did involve one of these books that I have over here. Yeah, a project. And Stephen is a friend of ours on the show, and he is gracious with his time as well. Quick thoughts since that podcast, any new developments? Have you looked into it anymore? Yeah, I mean, I think
2: roughly speaking, Steven is very interested in certain rules that he thinks can generate geometry Mm -hmm. and that through geometry, he will generate physics. And he believes that (coughs) these simple rules are on the verge of doing it. And I wish him the best of luck. Mm
1: -hmm. Okay, so let's see. Oh, Kevin Flowers with a big ticket item, I'll pay for one-tenth of one of my kids' co- uh, college textbooks. Kevin, which books would you recommend and apply gauge theory? So you gave your general overview of books, both in the realm of economics, like with your work with the lovely and talented Pia Milani, and or other fields more broadly. Very good question, Kevin.
2: So I would say that, first of all, the first chapter of Pia Malani's dissertation, so we did this joint work in gauge theory and economics, but she wrote up the first chapter of Pedagogically Aware, that economists didn't know anything about the fiber bundles and connections and parallel transport. So I would say that that happens to be probably the finest general introduction to this stuff, even though it happens to be in the service of economics, but that makes it quite concrete. Um, So I would say that really gauge theory hasn't been successfully applied outside of differential topology geometry in the math side and uh, fundamental physics on the physics side, and this will be applied everywhere that differential uh, calculus is applied. Once people figure out that gauge theory, isn't some remote thing, it's just a version of the differential calculus. So I, I Oh, sorry. Yeah. yeah.
1: So I had a thought that, uh, just as gauge theory, you know, kind of applies uh, economically as you, as Pia and, and you discussed, which I should point out was, uh, was popularized by Juan Maldacena, who's been on. Well, Juan Maldacena
2: used it. He used Pia's thesis in particular, um, originally, not citing it, but it, yes. when he, but he 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 did use it, and we I spoke to him about it as the basis for how to explain his receipt of the what is it the millennial pro, the, the breakthrough prize uh, of Yuri Milner and uh, Mark Zuckerberg. So he had to explain how he was linking string theory and gauge theory to explain gauge theory. He used foreign exchange mechanisms, building on the work that PNI did that appears in her thesis. Right. So it, 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 you can also take a look at his uh, his lecture explaining that at the Institute for Advanced Study.
1: Yeah, I, have, uh, I did an interview with him about two months ago on this podcast. I did a live chat with him and I brought that up and he did acknowledge that you guys were the source of it. But you're right, and I can say this Eric can't, but this does appear very often. So what happens, I did an interview with Comran Vafa, which will be appearing hopefully on Tuesday. And in Comran's new wonderful book, uh, Problem or Puzzles to Unlock the Universe, I have it somewhere around here. At the end of the book, he describes gauge theory and he doesn't cite, he cites Juan Maldacena's paper on uh you know, on the, so, so, You have to be careful and you have to do your research and and eric says things and people you know will say well he doesn't publish it that's not really true if you look back in and you know if you're willing to take the time and go back you will see and been able to verify everything that he has said has come true now whether or not gate you know geometric unity will come true or we can prove it in some sense whatever that means that's something you and i are working on but i would not spend my time investigating it if i didn't think you had credibility and because of the nature of physics we there's a there's a saying in one of my russian advisors to say every five years you must rewrite the literature meaning you basically forget everything that came before you and you act and this is i do this too like i just rediscovered the wheel and this is a common thing and the problem is when people cite that it's like wikipedia will have a reference you know, eric weinstein is the deep right you know whatever i don't even know far right and then and then someone will cite that wikipedia article in a newspaper article and now it's Yeah, but that's the
2: the game, and the game game is to misremember who did what. Mm -hmm. And, you know, let's be honest, you you had a young uh, woman of color from a developing country, immigrant to the United States, comes up with what I think of uh, in this collaboration as the most profound theory at the heart of neoclassical economics, completely foundational, buried by a bunch of old people who didn't understand it, never knew gauge theory, didn't understand group theory, Um, because it threatened them and what I'm really upset about and one of the reasons that I'm sort of avoidant about doing all this is that I've watched what seems like tens of stories if not hundreds of very established people making sure that people who need the the citations and the uh, attribution that they never get it and they don't have careers and so effectively what we have is we have a group of people who just doesn't know that they absolutely have no choice in who they cite if they're going to cite work that is done by people who are struggling to establish themselves. And I think that part of the problem is many of the smartest people in my generation are working outside of the academy, whereas before, the smartest people were working inside. And in large measure, it's because the people who got established stopped feeling that they had to acknowledge with attribution uh, where they got these great new ideas from. And mm-hmm. it's just, I don't know of a nice way of saying it, but we've done this with uh, with telomeres on my program. We're going to do it with gauge theory and economics. We're going to do it with uh, self-dual Yang-Mills equations and their cyberg Witten uh extension we're going to do it with geometric unity and the real reason that i'm avoiding talking about this is that i I, it's the attribution game that i won't put up with
1: right and once bitten and twice bitten and three times bitten i agree no my point is i'm
2: not i'm just not we're 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 large enough that we will never have to put up with this again
1: you don't have to so there's a question what does geometric unity say about singularities in a black hole
2: well what it what it gives is hope you see when you have equations the equations may have an essentially defective nature which manifests in what we might call essential singularities. And so when Penrose, for example, um, showed that you couldn't get rid of the singularities in a black hole or at the beginning of a um, symmetrical early universe with like a a Friedman-Walker-Robertson metric, what it was effectively saying was that Einstein gave us equations that had defects in them. And since his equations seem kind of perfect in a certain weird way, it was disturbing. Do the perfect equations have a a defect or does the defect tell us that the equations are imperfect and that there's something more to find? The key problem with Einstein is is that Einstein's first act is to say, let X be a space-time manifold. And it's so hard to figure out what you can say before that there's so little structure that Einstein Einstein is getting so much power out of simply choosing a space-time metric on a manifold that we don't know what we can do to go beyond Einstein's. one of the reasons why Einstein has been so stable is, is that the assumptions are so radically minimalistic. And then one of the things that geometric unity tries to do is that there's this old quote where Einstein says my equations are like a mansion half of which is made of fine marble the other half of cheap wood and so we've sort of made the assumption that the, the fine marble might be the problem and if you wanted to bury a body and have nobody dig it up you'd put it under something that nobody wants to destroy mm-hmm. and so in some sense the idea of getting underneath the concept of a space-time metric to replace that with a fiber bundle with two separate spaces and a relationship involving metrics that isn't a metric itself it's quite hard to do that, and the hope, of course, is, is that by get, getting pre to Einstein, by going upstream from Einstein, which is almost impossible, that maybe we can have an equation that doesn't have singularities, and I'm betting that geometric unity will not actually have those singularities.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, question from Ardvark: <clears throat> What importance would you put on understanding proofs for learning the mathematical machinery gauge theoretics of high-level physics? That's a little hard for me oh. to parse that. Do you, well, let's try it. Yeah.
2: What importance would you put on understanding proofs? So I'm, I'm guessing that proofs might be the... the, the, mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. Yeah. For learning the mathematical machinery. All right. So are proofs the right way of emphasizing the pedagogy around the machinery for high-level physics? Mm-hmm. I think that's an interesting question, actually, because what it's saying is proof theory tends to be more about mathematicians and what they need. On the other hand, if I'm a physicist, is is it right to take on the mathematician's need for rigor? Or is it good enough to have a physicist's kind of working knowledge of something that proxies for that kind of fussy finishing school attitude that the mathematicians bring to the table? Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. I think the mathematicians have actually proven that they think about these things better than the physicists. The great danger is, is that let's imagine that we got it wrong, that you shouldn't model physics by geometry. If you only knew geometry, you wouldn't have the ability to even formulate that thought. Now I don't think that physics is non-geometric, but you always have to remember that so far the mathematics and the geometry is still the map of the territory. It may be a very accurate map, but the map is not yet the territory. Mm -hmm. And so we have to be a little bit careful that if what we do is really learn only from books about geometry, then we have to say if we've missed anything if we've misencoded anything we may be trapped forever if we don't go back to the lab
1: okay super chat from the ohio from the great state of ohio what do you think about the new trend of econophysics papers challenging economics orthodoxy and the kinetic exchange model if you have read about it which i assume you have
2: uh, i've not read about the kinetic exchange model the issue of um econophysics there are these different intellectual disciplines that cross paths inside of markets. Mm -hmm. So finance, for example, has a very different feel intellectually than does macro, than does micro, than does econophysics, than does the gauge theoretic physics that P and I have introduced. Mm -hmm. And so what I would say is that in general, the core of neoclassical economics is a field uh, evenly divided between bullshit and insight. And they don't like the bullshit being disrupted because the bullshit gives the power to economics. Mm-hmm. Where there is bullshit, economists can say, well, it, you have to do things this way or that way, and they can wield political power, like saying, we, we have to free up our trade or we have to change the way we measure inflation. So they transfer a lot of wealth, claiming that it's coming out of pure theory. What are we doing here, Brian?
1: I'm looking at the uh, chat
2: room. Okay. And in that, um, I just don't know which camera. Okay, so in in that way, the problem is economists don't like things that weren't invented inside of economics in general because they don't know whether it's going to restrict the freedom to go to Jackson Hole uh, for the meetings uh, of the macroeconomists and Davos and all of these things and that they'd have to say, well, we used to tell you what you needed to do, but now we we have to surrender to some model that some kid came up with. So (laughs) I do think that in part, um, it's a cultural issue where economics would rather have power than accuracy and diverse economic
1: opinions. Hey, everybody, I just want to stop in the middle of this podcast as you're super excited and super interested in all the cool stuff we're hearing about from today's guest, And I want to do so to make an advertisement. No, this isn't for manscaping or some other type of product that I've been pitched to pitch to you. I don't think I've found quite the connection and resonance with manscaping, but maybe other things will uh, fit the bill. But I do wanna advertise on behalf of some other podcasts. And why would I do that? Well, it's kind of like when I get asked to blurb a book. Uh, After all, books are zero-sum games too. If you're reading somebody else's book, you're not gonna read Losing the Nobel Prize or my upcoming books, uh, which I hope to be announcing shortly on this very podcast. But instead, I do want to uh, recommend to you that you listen to some podcasts by my good friends, some of whom gave me a start on their podcast long before the Into the Impossible podcast. First one is a young man, a graduate student named Brandon Drachler, you can find him on Twitter, at T-S-O-T-U pod, and that stands for the State of the Universe podcast. And just recently in late November, he interviewed Dr. Daniel Whiteson, who's one of the other podcast hosts that I'm going to recommend to you. So Daniel and his uh, colleague and friend Jorge Cham, they host the Daniel and Jorge Explain the Universe podcast. You're going to hear a lot of universes here and these podcasts are really interesting and valuable contributions to uh, the scientific podcast world and i really enjoy listening to them and they've had me on their podcast both of these uh, uh, podcasts have hosted me as well and the last podcast that i want to recommend is is a podcast by two up-and-coming podcasters who started a podcast over the summer and uh they are named daniel hooper another daniel and shalma his co-host shalma uh, is a uh is a graduate student i believe she's at columbia is shalma and dan is a a physicist at fermi lab and so what makes them so interesting is that they go deep into the podcast world and this is shalma wegsman i'm sorry i forgot to mention her last name but she's soon to be a PhD, or maybe she already is a PhD at NYU. And she is a co-host of the Why This Universe podcast with Dan Hooper. They do tremendous work. Also, there is a podcast Twitter account called Why This Universe, and they claim to discuss the biggest ideas in physics broken down. And they come out with episodes every other Monday. So please tune into these podcasts and hope you'll stay subscribed to the Into the Impossible podcast, where we do uh, cover things in the universe and beyond. Into the multiverse, but we also do other things that I hope you'll find fascinating as well. Uh, stay tuned for upcoming episodes with many more Nobel Prize winners, as well as with uh, with maybe even a solo episode or two about my ideas as to where I think experimental physics should be going. I've had a lot of guests on the podcast, and I will continue to do so. Folks like Eric Weinstein, folks like Garrett Lisi, Stephen Wolfram, and Julian Barbers coming on the show but I wanna think maybe a little bit less in 2021 about theories of everything and more about experiments of everything. So stay tuned for that as well as guests totally outside the realm of the physical sciences. Look for an interview with uh, psychologists and with lifestyle optimizers and maybe uh, some brand name podcasters that you know and love. So with that, I'll end this quick quote unquote advertising break, return you to the action on today's podcast episode of the Into the Impossible podcast. Thank you so much for being a friend of the show. Please do help me out. The biggest help you can do, costs you nothing, is to rate the podcast and share it with other people. So I hope you'll rate it highly. I read each and every comment. So if you want me to check out your theory of everything, leave me a comment, and I'll at least read it. And that will be one way that we can continue to grow and share the love of this wonderful, magical, mysterious multiverse, perhaps, that we inhabit. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful day. And Now, please enjoy the rest of this podcast of Into the Impossible. We brought some props. You have brought some props with you, and I think this might help to answer uh, Kushal Thacker's question, or help to at least encourage an answer. What are some books to equip oneself with the mathematics required to comprehend the references your talks make as someone who doesn't have a quantitative background? The reason I say that is that I think you think geometrically, and you think geometrically in terms of physics. So Some of these items that you brought, I want to... And, and I should say, we are working, and I would love help with this. I don't know how we can recruit the into the Impossible podcast and the Portal podcast together.
2: You gotta be careful, there are a lot of crazy people out there.
1: No, there's a lot of wonderful people out
2: there. I, there are a lot of wonderful, <laughs> but there are a lot of crazy, don't think I don't see you out there.
1: Yeah, there they are, there you are. But listen, Eric did a wonderful podcast with his brother, Brett. Mm-hmm. And in that, you go through a mathematical description for a non-mathematician. Of oh, that was the one asking, on his On his, on pod. his podcast, yeah. yes. And you go through a, a very, very nice geometric interpretation. I've started a, a project to turn that into a mini ebook. Just what you've talked about there, not geometric unity, what's a fiber bundle? We were talking about this later. Um, if people can help with this, maybe on Discord or wherever we can figure it out, I think that would make an answer to Kushal Thacker's question. You'd have something geometrical, we'd have images, we'd have uh, and maybe animated movies for the ebook or whatever, where we show what is a fiber bundle, what is a, uh, what does it mean to have a covariance, what does it mean to be a one form, even simple things, and then build up, so you'd have the mathematical prerequisite for a possible approach to understanding geometric unity or any theory of uh, geometric physics. What do you think about that?
2: Um, well, this is something I do piecemeal a lot. So, for example, Brian is um, forcing me to hold up. A water wiggle, which they did not That's have. Technical wa- name of it. I think so.
1: You didn't get this from that Riley Reed podcast.
2: Um, passing over that in silence. <laughs> the water wiggle is in fact a torus. It is a donut filled with fluid, and they've suspended some little stars and things in the fluid. Literati. But the key thing is, is that the tube rotates through your hands. Well, you're holding the material. The material isn't moving in your hands due to friction, but the torus is rolling and it's very easy to let go of it and have it just slip on out. That thing is an example of what we would call a U1 principal bundle over the one sphere. So in other words, the two the dimensional torus, which is the surface of a bagel, is itself a fiber bundle with fiber U1 where U1 is a fancy name for the circle over a second copy of the circle and this thing with, which it's doing by rolling I mean the kids can play with it But what it really is is would be called the G action of the structure group on the principal bundle So this would be called a PG bundle and this rolling Motion would be called the G action of U one on its own total space of a principal bundle so while I'm saying you won principal bundle, everything is super confusing. On the other hand, you played with a water wiggle, presumably at some point, or your kids have, and that is actually the same thing. So you have some super confusing language, and then you have some toy that you actually have intimate physical familiarity with.
1: Visceral, yeah. I found it very... Uh, and so
2: that's... Then you, you take the same structure, which is a, a different version of the donut in the form of a hair tie picked up at some boutique in L.A., And if you start to rotate some of these rings in some directions, but different amounts, that's exactly what we mean by a gauge transformation on the nose. It's not, that's an analogy to a gauge transformation to the extent that you can see that is the surface of a torus, that rotation of that hair scrunchie is actually what we mean by a gauge transformation. Now you can also go to Sean Carroll's Mindscapes and ask him, well, what's a gauge theory? And he'll show you some equations and some principles and he'll say everything right. He's very clear and very clean. Mm-hmm. But the idea that nobody seems to have run- realized that scrunchies and water wiggles are principal bundles in which we can talk about gauge transformation. Mm-hmm. I don't know what we're doing. I feel like we're just completely dropping the ball on pedagogy where all we're doing is talking about entanglement over and over again right. yeah. and the multiverse and it's enough already.
1: You brought this last. The last time we constructed this in the, in the Keating Laboratory. Lest you think we're not doing experimental physics. Well, this. explain what this is. Well, th- what this was, was a model of the
2: observers. So the geometric unity theory is all about um, a concept called the observers. And if you, if, if space time were a circle rather than a four dimensional manifold, and we consider a circle one dimensional, even though many of you would call it two dimensional, which would be mathematically inaccurate. Mm-hmm. If we lived on a circle, then the observer's would be a gadget that looked like this. It would be the space of all possible rulers that we could put at any point on a circle and it would break up into two, di- two directions, one which would be the the ruler direction and the other which would be the circular direction. So rulers plus circles gives you a tube. And then the idea would be that you have this uh, bundle, which I've called the chimeric bundle. And never mind, you won't. You, many of you won't know what a bundle is, but it breaks up into two pieces. One piece lies along this space of all metrics, space of all rulers, space of all measurement devices, whatever you want to call it. And part of it sticks out. And the whole game is to get the part that sticks out to go along the ruler to co- be a complementary direction, not perpendicular, but along the ruler. So my point here is Brian. Brian's a physicist. We were able to use this to just talk about what the observer is, what geometric unity does, using a simple example we can build to get our intuition into higher dimensions. Because many of you don't have the background to say what a base space, a fiber bundle is, a horizontal bundle, pullback. There's a whole bunch of gadgetry. But the key point is what we're really doing is building things that can be seen and then generalizing them into the realm where we can't see anything Mm -hmm. and that's part of what we can do is we can create concrete objects which people can say okay i didn't understand what he said but i saw a tube there was a toothpick going along the tube there was a toothpick going away from the tube there were some lines on it what the f is going on and then as long as you're willing to see it out I guarantee you there's nowhere for it to hide. It can't escape. Then you've got the thing trapped because you actually have a physical model of it and then you just have to bring that up to higher dimensions. I have
1: to get this back to the Smithsonian. Uh, Hold on a second. So talk very briefly about this really cool exercise that you did with a young person. Uh, going through the double helix. So the analog between reading about, you know, the play-by-play of the Lakers versus the you know, Spassky-Fisher match uh, and playing through the chess pieces on your own, the difference in visceral retention and comprehension.
2: Well, actually, the people who figured this out, w- weirdly, were the Gracies in Brazil. Mm. And the uh, the Gracie challenge was such that they said, come anyone who thinks you have a better fighting system than we have, and we'll, we'll fight you and the gracies started remembering all of the fights and playing them back as they occurred they'd film them and they'd learn what all the moves are and they would pl- replay wrestling matches grappling mass- matches and striking mass- matches as if they were um chess games and so what i did with my kids was to read the double helix which is an incredibly well-written book i mean it, it stands as a work of literature to say nothing of the science but then the part where they actually work out the pairing relationships between the uh, nucleotides in the, in the nucleic acid um, all takes place because a guy named Jerry Donahue informs them. He says, you know, all the books are wrong. He's <laughs> like, what? Well, all the books are wrong. They all have hydrogen atoms in the wrong places on the nucleotides. And within two pages or something, Jim Watson has figured out the right hydrogen bonds <laughs> from A to C and T to G. And that action you can actually play through with your children mm-hmm. by moving the hydrogen atoms on a on a, but a bunch of plastic chemical building blocks and then you watch you, you recapitulate the history of 1953 yeah and it's you're actually it is visceral right and i'd highly recommend buying the book with a, a series of um w- with a model for molecular for, for making molecules. You can get on
1: Amazon. And yep. Just like I got this on Amazon, thanks to your recommendation. Actually, I got this 20 years ago. Is that right? This is a Klein bottle. So this is, imagine trying to read about this, explain this, etc. talk about uh, uh, complex uh, concepts to, to try to get in your head around. But then to actually have one of these, a Klein bottle, I think the guy's up in Berkeley. Cliff Stoll. Uh, Cliff Stoll, yes. So I bought these uh, from Amazon. He has a store on Amazon where he sells these things. Not too expensive. What a
2: bargain. 50 yeah.
1: bucks, you get a climb bargain. So get that etym- uh, So Stephen's asking the etymology of gauge. I think that comes from railroad gauges. Uh, basically, the fact that Herman you can change.
2: Herman Weill, I think, was the one who and used the word gauge in gauge theory, uh, which was the original attempt um, to show that something was scale invariant. The original gauge theory wasn't that's successful but it came back as a concept years later
1: good okay let's go through we have some more questions coming in here so thank you Stephen, for that question uh let's see we've got a whole bunch of questions about 700 people there Ooh, a big ticket one from andrew Carey. what does space time emerge from so this priest let's unpack this a little bit what does it mean to emerge what is space time does it uh how does it, and what could it possibly emerge from?
2: Well, that's, that's a great question because that's part of what we were talking about with Einstein locking us out. Um, when you say let X be a, spa- be a four-dimensional space-time, um, you're, you're foreclosing it. it's emerging from anywhere because you're putting it in by hand. Mm-hmm. So about the most minimal thing you can say that is prior to that would be let X be a manifold but without a metric because it's the space time metric that turns an ordinary four dimensional manifold. And I've been saying this recently, just bought an amplifier uh, and it has treble, medium, bass and reverb on it. And those four dimensions define a four dimensional manifold. Just by buying an amp, I immediately got a four manifold, but it didn't have a metric on it. If I say, well, Base is perpendicular to mid level and mid is perpendicular to treble and that they're all perpendicular to reverb, then I would have angle. And then if I have a zero to 10 scale on all of them, I would have a metric and that would put rulers and angles, but that would probably give it not a space time, but a Galilean sort of a metric because reverb would be measured in the same zero to 10 scale. Then if I made it zero to negative 10, it would get closer to the concept where reverb was somehow different. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, well, how do we get a space-time metric to emerge? The concept of the Obserververse is to say, work over the space of all possible ruler-protractor combinations. You pick up what my, a computer scientist might call technical debt. Um, So you you now have a much bigger space. Now not only do you have the four original dimensions, but you've got four rulers to measure size in all of those dimensions. So that's four plus four equals eight, and then you have six protractors that give you the angles between uh, T with X, T with Y, T with Z, X with Y, X with Z, Y with Z, right? And so those extra six protractors together with the four rulers together with the original four directions gives you 14 dimensions. And a space-time metric is then a map from your original four-dimensional space, shoving it into a larger 14-dimensional world, but a 14-dimensional world that was built from the original four-dimensional structure to receive it. Mm -hmm. And so then you see Einstein is basically giving us a tiny filament inside of a much larger space as a space-time metric. And what you then have to do is to accept that that's telling you to do physics on the 14-dimensional object and interpret it on the filament but it's actually happening much more generally inside so of a large- So is right
1: to say that space, four-dimensional t- four spacetime, would emerge from this 14-dimensional uh, observer? Yes. Yeah. So um, one other uh, point to note, uh, Andrew, is that there are uh, proposals, the har- uh, Hawking-Hartle Hawking, Harker, uh, Hawking Hartle No Boundary proposal is a suggestive of space being permanent, but time emerging, somehow cleaving off and being uh, nucleated at, at, a, at a certain moment Uh, that we call the Big Bang or we would call without a singularity having to uh, require the infinite amount of temperature and density that seem to be required at least in the original formulation of the hot.
2: But I would also say that in my model, um, there's parts of this observers that look like four space and no time, two time and two space, three time and one space, four time, zero space. All of those things have a reality to them, but we aren't, we aren't in a sector where we can see that reality.
1: Mm. Good, so we've got, uh, we've probably got 15, 20 more minutes to go here. We've got lots of people in the chat room. Reminder, talking to Eric Weinstein on the Into the Impossible podcast. Find him at the Portal podcast, and find him on YouTube. Is your channel just like Eric Weinstein? Or
2: probably Eric, Eric Weinstein. Okay.
1: Put that in the comments, people, if you know the actual name <laughs> of his channel. Okay, what would you say, Ryan is asking, uh, Eric, what would you say, studying nonlinear dynamics and complex systems now will be worthwhile in, or would you say in the next 10 years? It often feels though a lot of it is hype. Thank you, Ryan.
2: You know, nobody knows these things. Like there are lots of ideas that mostly live as some kind of hype until suddenly somebody figures something out to do with it. I think a good example of this is, um, Brownian motion in finance, where we didn't really know what to do with that model up until the sixties when Black scholes Merton came along and showed us how to price options using stochastic differential calculus. So if you'd asked me about stochastic differential calculus before that, I would say maybe it's nice, but it doesn't really do anything. And that's all you need is one paper to kick your ass and say, okay, apparently I had no idea what I was talking about. Um, so you know, the horrible (laughs) advice is go into a field that is incorrectly priced go into a field in which it doesn't seem that anything is going on and then show that everybody had it wrong which would be like if you understood uh, the blockchain in 2010 <laughs> uh you know you just had to wait for a while where everybody thought you were an idiot Actually, now you're gonna you can invite them all on your private plane to your private island
1: <laughs> so i had on shelly Glashow yeah. this week and one thing i we didn't get the debrief after that it was a lovely podcast i'll find it earlier on this week um and shelly said there was a point when Gelman, you know kind of put forth the eightfold way when he was literally when shelly was literally one of the few people on earth who understood it. And so he immediately knew that he wasn't gonna be the one that discovered it and, you know, won a Nobel Prize for that. He would win his Nobel Prize, you know, seventeen years later. For uh, lecture week unification, but Shelley knew that that Galman was right, and so but nobody else believed it for years. People didn't believe that Galman was right, and so he started doing all these calculations, making use of this insider trading is the way I took away from yeah. it. And uh, do you ever, you know, do you, do you think that that can be applied in, in other systems in physical, you know, in physics? Well, or in I, I can
2: say it openly, like. Mm-hmm. Um, pia malani's thesis revolutionized all of economic theory and it hasn't been understood if you want to do something revolutionary i promise you that that's been it's an it's an arbitrage i can share it with the world nobody will do anything with it because um the the world decided to stand in the way of that progress that's an incontrovertible fact to me. And w- years from now it'll come out and it will, somebody will say, why did we not understand that this was done 50 <laughs> years earlier? And then there'll be this, this series of uh, podcast appearances where it's like, well, didn't he keep telling us that? Yeah, because we've all got our heads wedged up there so far we can't see straight. That's the general nature of academics. It's not really a claim about, oh my God, you know, you're bragging so much about the various things that have happened in your family. No, it's very different than that. It's a claim that American... Uh, stem research has been going great guns and that the baby boomers and silent generation more or less held back a ton of different insights this is why we're still dealing with string theory all the time is the string theory is a movement almost entirely moved by baby boomers and earlier and it's mm-hmm. not a movement of gen x it's not a millennial movement yeah and so you know this this comment at planck about funeral by funeral I'm sorry to say it. It has much more to it than it should. Should we take a few questions that are really technical in nature, yeah. rather than super chat
1: questions? Okay. You dog. Someone's calling me a dog. All right. Technical question: Eigenboros were asking about the relationship of Yang-Mills theory within GU. Does it uh, appear? In
2: let's them? find the questions we can answer. Uh, here. Great. In geometric unity. There are effectively four major equations that exist before you get to GU from the standard model and general relativity that deal with each of the the different spin fields. So for spin zero and spin one, uh, that is the Higgs field and the vector potentials, those things belong to an equation that is generated analogously to Yang-Mills theory if you think about the curvature tensor as being an obstruction to a certain differential complex being a cohomology theory, you, if d squared does not equal zero but d squared equals curvature coupled to a connection then the idea is that you can take the size of the curvature square that and use that as what we would call a Lagrangian a, an objective function that penalizes some states of the world and privilege others and that's how we do physics. Well. What you do is you form a bosonic complex that's two-step. Uh, you have two differential operators. You would imagine that if you compose them, you would get a second order differential operator. You don't. Then you think maybe I get a first order. You don't. All of those terms die. You're left with a zeroth order term. You take the no- the size of that and square it just as you do in Yang-Mills theory. Now, the the problem is, is that the two other main equations um, By the way, the Eigenbros have been pretty loyal uh, followers of this stuff, so it's a pleasure Mm -hmm. to be able to answer this. Mm -hmm. Uh, The other two equations are the Einstein field equation for the spin two field and the Dirac equation for the spin one half fields. And those, in fact, go into a different set of equations that come from the square root of the original Lagrangian. So just the way Einstein took the square root, sorry, just the way Dirac took the square root of the uh, Klein Gordon Lagrangian. Mm -hmm. and got the Dirac Lagrangian and the Dirac equations, we take a a square root of this second order um, Lagrangian which produces the obstruction analogous to Yang-Mills theory and get a second Lagrangian which is much closer to a Chern-Simons structure and a Dirac structure. So the Einstein and the Dirac go into one place in the theory and they unify in that square rooted part and the Higgs field and the Uh, Yang-Mills field go into a different portion that have to do with minimizing a norm square of an obstruction term to a two-step elliptic complex much the way you you would in the deformation theory of self-dual Yang-Mills.
1: Okay, now this might be a a technical question or it could be full of something else. David Kiersey, Eric, did you study the relationship between Seifert fiber spaces, geometries of three space and the non-abelian finite simple groups? Twenty-seven sporadic groups, uh, pre-order Lisi's favorite. Eighteen simple groups, fam, your favorite G two. Do you understand this?
2: Uh, vaguely, um, not I. Not as you've not as you've written it. I, I mean, I am very interested in exceptional algebra. I've been much more interested in the large exceptional Lie groups than in the finite groups. I don't think there is anything uh, profound the way Garrett would think that, about. E8 and its relationship to the world. I think it's an artifact of putting together spinners and adjoint representations of orthogonal groups. That's tantalizing, but it doesn't really get you a hyper-unification without supersymmetry because, in fact, you have to quantize the whole thing bosonically. I don't buy that Garrett's um, move to infinite dimensions solved the problem. I I hope to be proven wrong. Um, He's going
1: to be on the show in a couple weeks.
2: That's great. But, again, you know, my feeling about this is large exceptional league groups are something I'd love to talk about. I haven't found them to be particularly important within physics, and i that was my second favorite unification scheme. I'm glad Garrett is doing it so I can think about something else, because my favorite is much more uh, important to me than is that second one. <clears throat> All right. Uh, do you want to try another technical
1: one? Uh, well, I look for one. Why is Stephen Wolfram wrong, in your opinion? Can there only be one, as the Highlander said?
2: Well sort of. Um, My hope is that he's not wrong, but I hope that if my theory turns out to be right, his won't be as important. And that's not personal to Stephen. I'm perfect. If I'm wrong, he's one of the people I'd love to be right. Mm -hmm. But what I believe is, is that once you have a theory that bootstraps itself from four degrees of freedom, you don't need a lot to get started. You don't need a super critical cellular automata to give you everything you just need it to give you four degrees of freedom and if you're willing to accept You know um, sweet salty sour and bitter then pretty much. That's as good as uh, Treble mid bass and reverb. Mm -hmm. You don't really need something to get you started So if I'm right, it doesn't mean Steven would have to be wrong But if I were right, Steven would have to be not as important as Uh, as the role that he's planning to play. And if I'm wrong, then we're gonna need to get the complexity in some way, and he's gonna have to somehow um, do that Mm -hmm. in his theory.
1: So uh, my friend Eden Raffaelli asked a question: Is academia becoming too terrified? Took that off the screen. It's not a technical question. This TED Talk, whiz bang. We talk, we joke about it. oh, wormholes, oh time warps, and you see things. Michio Kaku goes on Lex Friedman and talks about the God comes in here, and you know, and it's just like, give me a break. Pictures, if you will. Two two twins separated but at is birth. Why does Lex? Lex is a smart guy. Why does he fall for this nonsense? It's not that. It's the the, the
2: problem is, is that we're. We have to keep people excited. We've, we have to keep them in a state.
1: Do, do we have to tedify it? Like, well, that's it what is, I'm trying. Okay.
2: Well, I'm not trying to do that. I know you're not. Uh, but what saying. I'm trying to do is to try to say, look, you want to talk serious stuff? We can talk about hop vibrations. We can talk about principle bundles. We can talk about spinners. We can talk about any of the beautiful experiments. Yeah, beautiful experiments. Beautiful experiments, as we've been talking hmm? about. For some reason, We're in whiz bang mode Mm -hmm. and we, 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 we want, we think that the universe is all about us and that studying physics is going to bring us closer to some different way to stare into our own navels. And I I hope that that's true, but that's not the only reason we do this stuff. We do it to get it right. Mm -hmm. And I'm sorry to say, but part of physics that we get part of science that we get wrong is we tell everybody that science is exciting. Science is interesting. Right? No, it's not. Sometimes it's dull. Sometimes nothing happens for a decade. And if, if you're constantly expecting to, to be on the edge of your seat about what's happening in physics, when for my Go way to the of movies. thinking, right. Right, it, <clears throat> theoretical physics has not budged much in certain ways in 50 years, mm-hmm. just under. Okay, if you don't have that kind of patience, you probably don't belong in the field. And if you're impatient, then you better get in here
1: and uh, you know bring a shovel and a mop If you dropped a trillion dollars on either theoretical or experimental physics, which would have a bigger impact? Um,
2: My my feeling is is that you get the biggest impact from immunizing physicists from having to be scrutinized.
1: Meaning what? Immunizing them. They shouldn't be... I don't like transparency. you, You don't. No, okay. f transparency. We have so much transparency. Like every, you're laughing
2: because you know that everyone thinks transparency is a good thing. What we need is more transparency. Why can't we have transparency? We need transparency. You know what we need? We need feedback, best practices. We need some way of scoring things, better metrics. You're devitalizing everything about the field, right? Mm-hmm. Somebody should tell you take your h index, and and take your, your 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 forms in triplicate, and go fill them out somewhere else, because we're trying to do science in this place. Go get us some money, and then black black the windows out so nobody can see what we're doing, and let's make progress. But if you do all this transparency stuff, what you get is groupthink. Mm -hmm. And how's that working out for us since 1984 and the anomaly cancellation and strength theory? It's, It's been a disaster. So less transparency, we need more smart people, we need to get the people who aren't very smart, not very generative, not very creative out of the field, and we have to realize that this is super serious business that's contributed so much to the economy that it should never have to beg for another penny.
1: Yeah, but I mean, that sounds great. And you know, we should, nobody should go hungry, but there are priorities, right? So how do we balance these priorities? I mean, you made a suggestion when you first appeared on my podcast, oh, we got a tax, you know, semiconductor instructions, because the physicists invented the, but no theorist looked into, hmm, look at these uh, equations of Brillouin zones and and transistors, let me predict, or in in, uh, semiconductors, let me predict that this will have an application in supercomputers. No,
2: it's different than this. You want to screw yourself over as a society, let me give you an idea of how to do it efficiently, so you can screw up the the power of the United States and, and our economy for the foreseeable future. By all means, ask physicists to justify what they do every four seconds. Make sure that they tell you about the importance of understanding the early universe in terms of whether or not it can make your microwave oven five seconds faster. Okay? And and make sure that you get as much say about choosing who goes into the field as possible. Not on ability, but on extraneous details. Mm -hmm. Right? And then make sure that you're getting update reports every few seconds to know that people are actually making progress. And everyone will lie to you in the field. The field will grind to a halt. If you want to make actual progress and increase the diversity of the field, give the field money and stop asking so many questions. Let them do what they know how to do best and stop pushing them to lie about how, all the success that they're having, yeah, because they're it, failing.
1: It should be succeeded or failing based on not what technical applications Base- it produces, right? The problem is that it has technical applications. Yes, but, we my, come to but my
2: point is that mm-hmm. physics has proven itself so many times that if you're going to ask, well, what have you done for me lately, it's clear you don't understand the history mm-hmm. of theoretical physics and its impact on the economy and on geopolitics. And so go read up and then come back and you'll understand why it's really important to leave physicists alone.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, let's see. We've got questions about UFOs. I don't know if you wanna answer those. <clears throat> no. Should we build a bigger collider? I'll take that one. No, I don't think we should build a super a bigger collider. And I gave the example when I talked to Barry Barish uh, that will air next week. I think it'll air next week. And I said that it was good for him personally that the superconducting supercollider was canceled because we ended up building or the world ended up building a super collider of sorts called the LHC, which did what the SSC was designed to do. The only natural target at that time was the Higgs. That was the last missing element in the in 1990s when it was canceled by uh, during the early 1990s, 1993, I think. and uh, And it caused Barry to search for a new job. And the job that he settled on was called LIGO. And LIGO made a detection many, 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 many years later, and in fact, years after, you know, three or four years after, actually two years after, three years after the announcement of the Higgs detection at the LHC, for which Peter Higgs and and, and Glert won the Nobel Prize, but none of the six thousand experimental brothers and sisters, my brothers, right. won a Nobel Prize. So he missed out. He would have missed out on this little golden medallion, which I stole from him when yeah. we were, when he wasn't looking, um, had it not been canceled. So tell me what this future collider would be use for and I'll tell you uh, if it's a good enough use of taxpayer money oh man
2: yes go for it okay no we should definitely build the next collider and it may find absolutely nothing mm-hmm. and it's not necessarily true that if by just increasing energy we always find something if somebody told you that they lied to you the reason we should build this thing is completely different than what Brian said in my opinion in my opinion the reason to build this thing is that we have the money we have the know-how we're gonna lose the know-how and we're losing contact with the successful part of humanity. We, we, we don't know, why should I build this? Why, if I don't find anything, there's no reason to think, no, it's not the right reason. We should build it even if it fails. It's cheap, we've earned it. Stop being, stop being so stingy and ridiculous about this. This is the, we, we've also created a disaster in unleashing the power of nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. And if theoretical physics doesn't go further my concern is is that we're, we've marched us into the valley of death and we're not going to find a way out. And in part, this is already dangerous enough. The next thing to do is to understand particle theory and physical theory to see if there's <coughs> any way to actually get somewhere outside of our solar system. And quite honestly, this is, I, I feel embarrassed even saying this when I'm talking about people like Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates, Elon Musk, and you know, with world. tens of billions of dollars and it's just like, For F's sake, you know, I'm happy to not sit on top of the fact that a lot of that was taxpayer-funded stuff that then got monopolized and concentrated in a few places. Mm -hmm. But for F's sake, you know, if you're going to have ridiculous levels of concentration, don't give me $3 million for a little cute prize. Keep your money. (laughs) Cut it out. You know, if you've got real money to throw around, we should be actually building things that make a difference and matter. And this is ridiculous. And I, I just I also feel embarrassed on behalf of the physicists talking about money and can we afford to do yeah, this? I never of course s- we can afford
0: to do this.
1: Look, I never say that we should take all these theorists and again, you and I were debating this yeah. last night over some beverages. Very uh, good ones. Very good ones, yes, for Japanese beverages. <laughs> um, we were debating, you know, theory in in some sense is is abundant and plentiful and experiments are very expensive. Just the fact that there's only one experiment that you can name in particle physics which would supersede the current one, whereas there could be 10 or 12 different theories and different dimensions. See, we different-
2: disagree about that too. I say that the number of real theories is almost zero because the constraints are so high didn't used to be the case. Right. But I think that really what's going on, and this is an important thing, this is the kind of thing I can say that you can't, yeah. is, is that Brian is quite correct that our experimental friends are not getting a huge amount of mind share and we were talking about like the great experiments the Cobalt 60 experiment with respect to the weak force or the Aronoff-Bohm effects which showed us some aspect of electromagnetism super late in the game in the 1950s that could have been done at any time that's so mind-blowing we can't even think about it or the famous, you know, magnetic oh. monopole that one time went through uh, <laughs> Palo Alto, <laughs> California.
1: California. Laboratory. R- right. And so
2: mm-hmm. we've got scandals, we've got the discovery of the Higgs particles, we've got the neutrinos coming from
1: 1987, a supernova. Davis Jason Wilson discovering the microwave background, uh, uh,
2: serendipitously, uh, yes. Uh, and what's, what's, uh, what's the name of the antenna? Holmdale. Holmdale Antenna in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there's so many great stories. We've been remiss telling the experimental side of our story. And I think it's really important to give the experimentalists their due and not only fetishize theory. Yeah, you know, why that, is it
1: that we have, yeah, when you ask a theorist, it's it's you, it's Lisa Randall, it's Jan Eleven. These are all friends of mine that have been on the podcast. It's Brian Green, it's Michio Kaku. When is it going to be, you know, Elena April, who leads the Xenon one ton experiment? Well,
2: but it's also, I mean, to be fair, even in the theorist case, why isn't it... Uh, Edward Witten. Why isn't it uh, Carlo Rovelli? Like the, we have a bunch of these people who actually try to theorize about this stuff, and the podcast world thinks that Brian Greene, Sean Carroll, Jana, myself, you are are where it's at. It's up to us. Look, I mean, I, I can be resentful of those ca- characters at times, but it's really important to say that the mainstream of theoretical physics is concentrated not in the podcast world, but at the Institute for Advanced Study.
1: Mm -hmm. Okay, so we're running short. Eric and I are gonna be departing to welcome in a very important ritual in both of our lives. The Jewish Sabbath is coming soon. Uh, Let me see if we can figure out a couple of more good questions here. If you had a 3D commuter model of your paper tube, what things would you want to do with it? I don't think it's just about the paper tube you want. You want a model of uh, of the observers, in uh, well, just to lower say
2: it, it, the model of the observers, the circle would be replaced by let's say a four dimensional torus, and the one dimension of along the tube would be replaced by ten extra dimensions. Those ten dimensions would be both related to something called SO ten theory as well as the ten uh, coupled nonlinear equations that constitute general relativity. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it makes a linkage between those tens and actually really something called the Petit Salam model, but that has Mm -hmm. to do with uh, low dimensional exceptional isomorphisms.
1: Tyler, what's your question? I can't find it, so I'll I'll give you a free question if you asked uh, $100 super quick. Can you ask it again really quickly just in the chat? You don't have to do another super chat. (coughs) Uh, Tyler's a friend of mine make sure we get that in. Um, Where does consciousness come into geometric unity? Uh, It's a great question.
2: Um, I think it's really important that we stop interposing ourselves between um, the world outside and what we are. And I I just, I've become very disheartened that we have to be at the center of everything. I don't think the universe is about us. Um, Maybe it's about us, maybe there's a creator and there's a whole point to this thing. But we've got to stop act- asking, what has the universe done for me? It's it's sort of embarrassing that we, we, we've we taken this thing of infinite complexity and we've decided that it's about humans. And it just isn't. And I really want us to stop making this about consciousness, about love, about spirituality. Mm-hmm. The universe is about the universe. What we should be figuring out is what are we doing to relate to it rather than trying to shoehorn it into a, a, a whole shape like us. Right.
1: So a question about academia, why it's getting so hard. I like to make the analogy, imagine if it was possible to get into, oh, someone's asking about patenting something. Wait, actually,
2: I want to talk about things that mention things that sound technical.
1: Yeah, I know. I'm looking for it. Can you patent anything? No, so the re- that's All not right, where necessarily Where do technical. the
2: various gauge groups?
1: Yeah, go for it.
2: All right, you read it out.
1: Where do the various gauge groups, e.g., SU2, SU3, lay in geometric unity, flavor space, color space, do these arise from GU's 14 dimensional construction? In,
2: in 14 dimensions, you have a four dimensional space and a 14 dimensional space. The four dimensional space is embedded in the 14 or even immersed in the 14 dimensional. The 14 dimensional space carries a bundle that is isomorphic to the tangent bundle but is not canonically isomorphic. It has a metric. If you do spinners on that 14 dimensional bundle, I believe you get to the unitary group in 128 dimensions through the spin representation. So spin 14C, I think goes to U14C or something like that. You're pulling back that bundle that U128 uh, via map from spin 14C into into that uh, large unitary group and that group is going to contain the SU3, the SU2, the U1, and I think it's going to do it along the Petit Salam breakdown of 10 dimensional space into 6 dimensional space and 4 dimensional space. SU4, which is typically the Petit Salam group, is exceptionally isomorphic to spin six and su2 cross su2 is exceptionally isomorphic to spin four and so the six and the four add up to ten and i believe that that's how that that story goes
1: someone asked about the shape of particles within geometric unity does that, that does that even make sense but I like the I
2: like the technical question that we just got. That yeah. was a good example, good use of our time.
1: Somebody asked about patenting something. I know. I I know that. But listen to me, just as it has a practical application, understanding you know the strong force, the weak force. But and, you know what? I'm tired. Decay.
2: I'm tired of this. This is about what it's about. It's about trying to understand the universe and mm-hmm. talking about how do you get rich from it. What can we do with it? No, what no, technology- that's not what I meant. I, I meant, know.
1: Yeah, I know that that's what he meant. But what I mean is, could this unlock you know, technology, could it unlock potential devastating been, power?
2: I am much more afraid that it's right than it's wrong. If that's it's right. wrong, it was a beautiful dream and it's over. Mm-hmm. If it's right, then we have to worry about the consequences. What can you do with this that you couldn't do before?
1: Mm-hmm. All right, last question I want to take. <clears throat> Sorry, Tyler, if you're hearing this, ask your question one more time. I'll try to get it to Eric. Uh, last question. Let's try to find one more technical question. Infinity, biggest version of infinity. I don't know what that means. Parent, uh, painting, can you create? Someone asked about music. And, yeah, but I, I don't
2: wanna do any of that.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I wanna do serious questions about the theory.
1: When you talk about information, asking uh, universe. Because you know, one of the things is that I'll be,
2: if I talk fluff, people will say, well, that's all that fluff stuff you do on the internet. And then if I say, no, I you want to talk to technical, then what people will say is, well, you lost everybody. Right, so there's sort of no win.
1: <clears throat> is Bell's theorem, does it appear, does uh, collapse of the wave, where does the standard uh, aspects of quantum, um, of the you know, unitarity to collapse, et cetera, does it live? Does it have a place within GU for our final question? for? Well, I would say this. Ones.
2: Different metrics sample different portions of metric space from the four dimensional piece. So if you had a different metric, then you're having a different observation of a different filament within the 14 dimensional space. So I believe that that will have something to do with the quantization, but it's phrased as a natural geometric theory because natural geometric theories post the seventies have the opportunity for geometric quantization since we figured out what to do with hamiltonian mechanics in the symplectic geometry category by forming pre-quantum line bundles and then taking sections of the pre-quantum line bundles to give the state space of the theory generating the quantum out of the classical so while it's not exactly true there's an old saying that quantization is an art, not a functor, but it's less true after the seventies. It's more of a functor. The quantizations often suggest themselves that the theory is sufficiently geometrically natural. And what this is, is a natural geometric theory that suggests that it's quantization will be the standard model. And the claim is if you have anything that's remotely right, like three, If you have a a natural geometric model that has three generations of 16 particles each with a 3-1 metric and all, if the stuff starts lining up, then it's highly unlikely that the quantization will be its problem. We know how to quantize a good theory. The problem is, is we haven't had a great theory to quantize.
1: Does this question make any sense? <clears throat> what are the fundamental particles made out of, quote, Frank is asking? Frank check. I assume. Uh, in string theory, particles are explained in terms of nine-dimensional strings vibrating in this abstract space and time. Uh, what does uh, GU say about fundamental particles composition?
2: Well, that this begins, it's non-revolutionary in this aspect. If we think that in the standard framework, we have bundles, and that these bundles have sections, which are a, fa- a fancy name for functions. Think of the XY plane as an example of a bundle. The X axis is its base space. The translates of the Y axis are its fibers. Then functions are called sections uh, in this new language. In that new language, particles are going to continue to be sections of bundles. So I do not that's not an area where GU differs from the standard model in general relativity.
1: All right, well, I am now, so you all were here, you watched this ad free. Anyone who comes afterwards is gonna to have to suffer through ads. Eric, I wanna thank you so much. I wanna take us out with a little music from our friend, Mr. Miguel at Yeti Tears. And Eric, I wanna wish you continued success and continued visits to UC San Diego uh, many times in the future. May we go from strength to strength together. Thank you so much, my friend. Inshallah, and now, Shabbat Shalom. And now we're off to dinner. Thank you for going into the impossible. Please subscribe. We've got great interviews coming up with guests such as Cumran Vafa. And we have Ray Weiss, Barry Barish, and many other people coming up on the Into the Impossible podcast. May, may they find
2: their way from the UCSD podcast to the portal. Great guests. I'm, I'm supposed to on the portal, right? It's going to happen.
1: It's going to happen. You heard it here.
0: If you enjoyed this episode of Into the Impossible with Professor Brian Keating, please subscribe, comment, share, and review. Watch on YouTube, listen on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or Stitcher. We appreciate hearing from you and are always open to your suggestions for future episodes. For more information and to sign up for Professor Keating's mailing list, go to briankeating.com. Follow Professor Keating on Medium and Twitter at Dr. Brian Keating, Dr. Brian Keating. For more information on the Clark Center, go to imagination.ucsd.edu. Into the Impossible is a production of the Arthur C. Clark Center for Human Imagination at the University of California, San Diego in the Division of Physical Sciences. Eric Veary, Director. Brian Keating, Co-Director. Produced by Ryan Keating and Stuart Volko.